So I didn't leave the stage. That's okay. Um, but, but that's really important part in Washington to have that bumper. Because for me, it's my cue. Like, all right, the sermon's about to begin. So uh, I, I, we need to have that so that we can make smooth transitions in Washington. So Washington, hello again. Uh, Got to give them a shout out for all you people online that are watching, maybe traveling. Um, welcome this morning as well. And then uh, Germantown campus again. So glad to be here. I get the opportunity today to teach. As I said, I usually get this last Sunday of the year. And today I felt uh, as I've been doing some Bible studies on my own, I've, I've actually been in the book of Judges and um, just reading about the different judges and uh, the last month or two have been studying about Samson. And so I thought, you know, what better way to look at the life of a judge in the Bible and compare them to this time and the season that we have uh, leaving 2019 and going into 2020. We always, we always take this look, right, in our lives as we uh, come into a new year. We look back and we go, what did I do right? What did I fail at? What did maybe I miss? Um, but, but what were some good things? And then we look to 2020, the new year, and we go, hey, I'm going to work out, right? I'm going to eat better, right? I'm not going to spend as much money. And six weeks later, we're in the same trap, right? Right? That's what happens. But we take this assessment, and we plan, and we try to do better in the new year. And I, I thought about Samson, and I said, and I was just, you know, praying and asking God, like, so what, what does this have for us in this time of season? I think the biggest thing is, is a lot of times we look back at the year that has passed and we look at the things more so what we didn't accomplish rather than the good things that did happen. We, we have a tendency to always look at the failures and the negative things and they tend to always trump the positive things in our life. Not always, but oftentimes that's how we, we think. That's how our world thinks. We, our news, media, everything, they, they tout the negative. And, you know, every once in a while there's a glimmer of hope and a story of hope and, and of happiness. But most of the time it's just negative, 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 what could have been done better. And so today I want to talk about failures to faithfulness and how God uses those. But speaking of failures, I have to be honest, I'm a failure at times. I am a failure at times. I'm a failure at being a husband sometimes to my wife. Sometimes I don't always support her like I should support her. Sometimes I don't always say the right things. Sometimes I say too much. Rather than listening and not saying anything, I offer advice and I say too much, right? I fail at times at being a husband. I fail at being a father, same thing. Sometimes I fail at maybe getting too angry with my boys and not understanding their position. Rather than hearing them out, I get angry and quick or frustrated because they've asked the same question three times or four times or five times or six times, right? And so sometimes we, we let those instances, or instances in our lives, we respond inappropriately and I feel sometimes I fail as a father. Sometimes I've allowed them to maybe do some things that they shouldn't have done, right? And I get the opportunity to learn those failures, but I failed at being a dad. I failed at being a friend, you know, I grew up with a, in Washington, and I, I grew up with a couple guys uh, in high school that were good friends. And I remember that when Kayla and I uh, first got married, and I had, we found out the news, my brain tumor, I had my surgery. I had a couple friends from high school that, man, they were great. They came down and saw me. They visited me. You know, but one of those friends, he lost his mom. And, and I wasn't able to be there, and I, I failed him as a friend. 
He was there for me, but I wasn't able to be there for him. I failed him as a friend. Maybe there's an instance where you can think of a time where you failed a friend. I've failed as a pastor. I already told you, I don't respond to Steve's text, so I failed as a pastor. <laughs> but sometimes I've failed at being the shepherd I needed to be. Sometimes I've failed at maybe not praying enough and interceding enough for a need. Sometimes I've had my own interests at heart as opposed to maybe your interest. I've failed as a pastor. I've failed as a son. You could ask my mom and dad. I've failed many times as a son, right? Some of them you look back and they're funny now. Some of them you look back and go like, what were you thinking, you idiot, right? But I've failed as a son. I've put my mom and dad through things in, in their lives that they wished never would have happened, right? But they still love me. I've failed as a brother. I have two, other, two younger brothers. I'm the oldest. One time, my brothers and I were at a, a, a family friend's home in Peoria. We, we grew up in a church down in the inner city um, until we were about 10 or 11 years old. We went to their house. They lived not too far from the church, and uh, we're out in the alleyway playing, and there's these couple kids that came up to us, and they wanted to start a fight, and they were trying to pick a fight with us, and I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter, right? And so I, I'm, I'm sitting here. I'm talking to this guy. You don't want to fight me. Why, you know, why do you want to fight me? He's like, you know, no, you don't want to do that. So just hold it. My brother's over here getting pummeled by the other guy, and, and I'm sitting here trying to talk this guy out of fighting. I should have just stepped up and been the brother and, and just gone wrangled both the boys up and been the brother I should have been. Now, I'm not encouraging fighting, but when you need to defend yourself, sometimes you got to do that. So I used my mouth. It worked for me, but it didn't work for my brother, <laughs> right? So I failed my brother. I failed my brother, right? And he still lets me live that to this day. He's like, you weren't there for me. You bailed on me. You talked him out of it, but you didn't help me. And I'm like, I know, Josh. He said, you forgive me? He's like, he forgives me. But I failed as a brother. See, I think what we all have experienced as I'm going through this is I think we can all look back and we can all look to things that we have failed at as an individual, as a person. We've all failed at different things, but we all fear failure and we often rile with regret. I think this is important for us to understand is that because of failure, it leads us to regrets. And oftentimes those regrets are what we hang on to. The failure reminds us of, of the incident, but we regret what happened. I regret not being at my friend's mom's funeral because he was there for me. I regret not being there for my brothers, right? I regret not always being the good husband that I should be or the good father, right? We can, we can get so hung up in the regrets that the failures overcome us. But I think it even goes deeper. It goes even deeper. That we all have fallen prey to failure in many ways. We've failed by being lazy at home or at work. We failed by being lustful, longing for things that aren't ours or for things that we want. Maybe it's a new home, a new position. Maybe, maybe it's a woman or a man that we've lusted after that we shouldn't be. But the Bible's clear on what we should and shouldn't do in that. We failed by being envious and jealous of others. We failed by lying, by cheating, by gossiping, etc., etc., etc. We have failed at so many things in our lives. But the good news, and there is good news, 
is that just because you failed at something, that doesn't mean you are a failure. And this is important. This is really important, that just because we have failed, it doesn't mean that we're a failure. We are not identified by our failures. So what I wanted to do this morning is I wanted to give us just a little bit of a backstory and kind of walk you through Judges 13, 14, 15, and 16 and the story of Samson. Because I believe Samson, as a judge appointed by God over the Israelites in the day, he made a lot of mistakes. A lot of times our failures come from emotions that we don't control, right? A lot of times when we make the mistakes ourselves. Now, sometimes failures happen to us because of external circumstances that are out of our own control. But the circumstances that sometimes we make ourselves, maybe step by step by step, eventually lead to a failure are often driven by our need, our want, our emotion for something that either we shouldn't or or shouldn't have or shouldn't want or, or shouldn't try to get, right? And so a lot of times those failures happen in those emotional states. And I think in Samson, we see this happen, but I want to set up the story of Samson so we can kind of understand who he was. And so in the 13th chapter, I'm going to hang out by the TV here a little bit because we're going to, I got some bullet points for you. But um, I'm getting used to this whole TV thing. Pastor Jake's really good at it. You know, he kind of slides in real gently. And, and, then, and so I'm getting used to it. And so my first time, so bear with me. I may walk away a couple times. But, um, but with Samson, in the, in the 13th chapter, it's kind of neat because we only three, we, we see in the Bible only three times of a child being foretold. We see it with Abraham and Sarah being foretold. And then we see it here with Samson by an angel. And then we see it with who? Who do we just celebrate's birth? With Jesus. We see with his birth. There's only three times in the Bible that an angel foretells of a birth, okay? And so we see that here with, with uh, Samson. And not only is Samson foretold by an angel, but he's also told, his mom and dad are told, that he is actually to be born into a Nazarite vow. Now, a Nazarite vow, I like to put it this way, is like a fast, okay? There were certain rules to it that you had to abide by, and like we may have to do as a fast, a medical fast, or maybe a spiritual fast. It's something that we choose to limit ourselves from in order to either to medically get better or to spiritually try to get more in tune with who God is as we fast from things of this world, right? So Moses, or not Moses, but Samson was born into a Nazarite vow. And here's the three things he couldn't do. He couldn't eat or drink unclean food, could not touch a dead body or be near a body, and he was not supposed to cut his hair, okay? Three rules that he had to live by as a Nazarite vow. Now, most of the time, people just entered into this for a short period of season. Samson, he gets to be in this for his entire life, okay? His entire life with these three rules. Then we get to Judges 14. Now, between 13 and 14, between his birth and 14, I imagine some years have transpired because we see, we see Samson now in, in, in uh, chapter 14. Now he's out looking for a wife, okay? So he's definitely of age to marry. And so as we go through 14 here, I'm just going to point out a few things, okay? First off, we see Samson. He lays eyes on a Philistine woman, and he asks his parents for a hand in marriage, okay? So he desires to marry a Philistine woman, okay? Now, here's the thing. All you young teenagers in the room who are dating, my mom drilled this into my head. Do not be unequally yoked, okay? So the Bible says, do not be unequally yoked. So that means if the girl you like is an atheist, you probably shouldn't date her if you believe in Jesus, right? So do not be unequally yoked. 
Samson's parents were like, hey, she's a Philistine, you're an Israelite. You probably shouldn't marry her, right? That's what Samson's parents were saying. But Samson's like, ah, that's okay. I want to marry her anyways, okay? So he decides to marry her. His parents go down. They make the arrangement. And on the way down, we see Samson's first great feat. And here's his great feat. He kills a lion with his bare hands, a young lion with his bare hands. Just like the Bible says, just like a young goat, he tears the lion apart, okay? Now, he has a Nazarite vow, right? He's not supposed to touch anything dead, but he just killed a lion. So we already see him breaking one of the rules in the Nazarite vow, okay? He goes down. He sees a woman in Timnah that he wants to marry. They meet her and her family. They do whatever they need to do, the customs there. They come back. And on his way back, he sees this dead lion carcass. So it had to be some time because bees had some time to make a hive in it. And he sees the carcass. He sees the, the, um, the beehive. And he reaches in. He gets a bunch of honey out of it. And he feeds it to his mom and dad. And so we see him uh, with kill the young, young lion. And then he gets the uh, scripts of honey from the dead carcass of that same lion. And then, again, breaking that Nazarite vow. Then they come back. So there's a lot of back and forth here. Okay, it's only like three miles, not too far. But there's a lot of back and forth here uh, of them arranging this marriage. But when he comes back, he's at the marriage, con- marriage preparation. He gets to hanging out with these Philistines. Um, this family brings their Philistine friends in. And he, and he decides to, to be uh, a little arrogant. And he's like, hey you know what, I'm going to make a bet with you. 30 garments if you guys can answer my riddle, right? And the riddle is this. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. But here's the thing. The guys can't figure it out, right? They can't figure out the riddle. So they start talking to his future wife, his wife-to-be, and say, hey, can you get the answer from Samson? Well, women, she did what sometimes you do best. And she nagged him. I'll probably face little slaps after this, probably. <laughs> but men, we can also be naggers too, so we have to be careful, right? But she did that. For, for seven days, during the wedding feast, she cries and weeps and nags him, and eventually he gets so tired of it, he gives her the answer, and eventually she takes that answer. She gives it to the Philistine men, and they come back and answer the riddle, what is sweeter than honey, honey, what is stronger than a lion. Now, this infuriates Samson. And so, to pay his debt, rather than just taking 30 garments of his own, he goes down to the town, he kills 30 Philistine men, he gets their garments, and he goes and pays the debt to the men who he put the, posed the riddle to. But here's the funny part. So, right during that wedding feast of Samson, he comes back with the 30 garments, pays off his debt, he comes to his father-in-law, and says, where's my wife? And his father-in-law goes, oh, I thought you were angry with her, so I gave her to your best man. Now, what kind of dude is going to do that to his, his friend, right? See, he failed his friend. He broke the man code, right? You don't do that, right? And so we see the father-in-law give his wife to Samson's best man. Thus, we see Samson head home in anger. That's Judges 14. Now, we get to 15, Okay. Samson didn't believe it. In the first verse, we see Samson, he comes back. He's like, not my best man would not do that to me. He comes back. He says, I want my wife. And the father goes, hey, remind, I'm just going to remind you, I gave her to your best man. But here's her younger sister, and she's more pretty. What do you guys, what kind of dad would do that? 
That's horrible. And they're like, oh man. But so this is so far the life of Samson, right? He, he made a bad decision. He, he tried to be arrogant and, and, and offer a funny riddle to get some gain for his own. And in the end, he has to end up paying for it. Not only does he have to kill 30 men and that, he also loses his wife to his best man. And he's offered her younger sister. But now Samson feels that he is justified in his retaliation. So he goes out and he catches 300 foxes. And with those foxes, he decides to put 150 torches in between the tails of the two and light them on fire and send them into the grain fields and the olive orchards and burn down the Philistines' fields. Now again, can you see where Samson just kind of keeps responding out of emotion and anger? Now, the Philistines had imprisoned the, the Israelites and the Israelites did not like the Philistines. So, so God is using Samson in these moments, but he kind of keeps making these mistakes over and over again. And what happens from this is that the Philistines then seek revenge on Samson and they burn his wife and her family in their home. The Bible can be cruel, can it? I mean, you think about it. You think about all these stories in the Old Testament. It's like, man, what they gave and what happened sometimes, it's just hard to understand. But after that, Samson retreats. He goes to a rock on a cleft in Edom and there the Philistines come to hunt Samson. They've brought an army of men to Judah. Judah comes out to the field to meet them as if to go to war. But the Judah men say, who have you come for and what, what have we done? And the Philistines say, we have come for Samson because of what he's done to our fields. And not here do we see the, Jew, the men of Judah actually stand up for Samson and be like, hey, no, we've got his back. He's our brother. They're like, ah, oh yeah, we'll go get him for you. No problem. Matter of fact, we'll bind him for it and we'll bring him to you, right? So we also see even Samson's own men, his own family, also surrendering him to the Philistines because they don't want to fight for him, even though he'll end up fighting for them. So 3,000 men of Judah come to turn him in. Now it's funny, let's take a moment here. 3,000 men, it wasn't 30, it wasn't 10, it was 3,000 men. So what does that say about Samson? Did they know who Samson was? I think they did. I think they knew that 3,000 might not be enough, right? It just might not be enough, but 3,000 come to get Samson. And there in the cleft of the rock, he asked them, are you here to kill me? And they said, no, no, we're here to turn you in. And he says, okay, tie me up and take me to the Philistines. And as they take Samson to the battlefield there and present him to the Philistine, God gives him his strength. He breaks the binds that bind him. He grabs the jaw of a donkey bone, and in that moment, he kills a thousand Philistines with the jaw of a donkey bone. That's why they brought 3,000 men, right? Because they knew that he had the strength to beat an army. What's funny in that last part of 15, then we see Samson complain to God a little bit. He's thirsty from fighting. And so he says, God, are you going to let me die of thirst? But God doesn't. He opens up a well on the ground, and Samson, Samson drinks and is replenished. And then it's kind of neat, because we, then we see there that Samson judged for 20 years. So I think we see here in these first two chapters, our 13, 14, 15, we see his birth. We see, I think, some of his youthfulness, 
you know, wanting to be married and, and kind of making some mistakes and failing at some things. But in the end, we, we see a man who's kind of succumbed to, I think, the call that God's put in his life. And, and now we see that, hey, he ruled as a judge for 20 years. But in chapter 16, we see, I think, towards the end of Samson's life, some more of the mistakes, the final mistakes that he makes. And we begin in the first first era where Samson is in Gaza and he's there and he engages with a prostitute. And while he's engaged there in the home, uh, the, the Gazite men, they decide to surround the home. But he sneaks out in the middle of the night and he goes to their gate. Now, a gate for your house or for my house, usually the form of protection, right? For the cities of that day and age, gates were massive. Some some commentaries, it depends on which one you read, but some would say the gates that Samson ends up pulling out of the ground weighed anywhere from 700 to 4,000 pounds uh, that he was able to just yank out of the ground. And not only did he yank it out of the ground, but he carried it on his back to the hill in front of Hebron and put it as a sign to the Israelites that God has given me the strength. The Philistines are not in control. God is in control, and he's given me the strength. So it was, a, it was a shameful moment for the Philistines with him pulling this gate out to show how weak their defenses really are when it came to him and who God had made him to be. But then we get to probably the part of the story most of us know, Delilah. Delilah. Remember that radio show? She's still on the radio. <laughs> Call in Delilah. Delilah here. <laughs> Got a favorite for you, right? So she chose that name on purpose, right? Because the Del- Delilah was, in a lot of ways, a seductress to Samson. He loved her. He ends up spending almost the rest of his life with her until he ends up in prison. But what we learn from Samson and Delilah in this whole story is that I think it's what we end up doing with the devil. We end up toying a lot of times with sin and the devil. Samson toyed with Delilah. Remember the riddles that he told the Philistines? He thought he was smarter than they were, and he decides to play that same game with Delilah. And we see it here four times. The first time is that he says, hey, if you tie me up with seven fresh bowstrings that are not dried, then I'll lose all my strength, and you can capture me and, and take me to prison, right? And Delilah's all about finding out what makes him weak so that they can capture him and get paid because that's all she cared about was getting paid. And so she ties him up, calls the Philistines. They break in, they enter in. He breaks the bowstrings and there we go. It doesn't work. Delilah whines and cries and nags a little bit more and the second time, He says, okay, if you tie me up with new ropes that have never been used, then my strength will be gone and I'll be able to be subdued and take me away. And so she does that. She puts him to sleep. She ties him up with new ropes and then calls the Philistines. They come in and he breaks the ropes and again, they don't succeed. She continues to whine and cry and nag again. And in third time, he gets a little bit closer this time. He says, you know what? If you weave my hair into locks, and then you tighten them with a pin, then my strength will be gone. See, he is toying with the devil. He's toying with Delilah. He's toying with sin. And he's getting a lot closer to what eventually leads to his weakness, right? She calls the Philistines. They come. 
It doesn't make him weak. He beats him up again. And then finally, finally, she whines, she cries, she nags. And the fourth time, we see Delilah. And I, I think it was very interesting because as you read that, it says that as he begins to tell her that if you cut off my hair, I'll lose my strength, she sees in his eyes that he is telling her his heart. And it makes me wonder, is Samson maybe a little tired of the game? Is he a little tired of being who he is? Maybe. Or is he just so in love with Delilah that he's blind, even to the fact that three times beforehand she has tied him up and tried to make him be caught by the Philistines? But why, in this moment, why now would he give in? Would he give up? Maybe it was because of love. Maybe he was tired. But I think that's applicable to us a lot of times because sometimes we finally toy with sin enough, we toy with the devil just enough that eventually we get tired and it's either surrender or it's fight and flee. And I think he surrendered. But we're left with a little bit of hope here in verse 22. And it says this, that after they caught him, they gouged his eyes out, they chained him to a grain mill in the prison where he ground grain every day. But then there in the 22nd verse, it reminds us that his hair began to grow again. Now, let me point this out real fast. Samson's strength wasn't in his hair. God gave him the strength. The hair was due to his vow that he was born into. So God provided him that strength through the Holy Spirit. But because of the vow and what God had to honor, that is why we see this, this verse here that, rem, that reminds us that his hair began to grow again. And as that hair grew out, his strength began to return. But as I was thinking about this sermon, it's going like, man, this is kind of heavy. We're talking about failures. Man, we're all falling. Samson keeps falling. Eventually he falls into prison. He gets his eyes gouged out. He's just stuck on this wheel, grinding grain all day long, spinning around in circles. And like, I thought, but man, but he's got to get back up, right? And I thought about a song back in the 90s by a band called Chumbawamba, right? And it says, I get knocked down, but I get up again. No, you're never going to keep me down, right? And so that's what happens, right? It happens to each of us, right? Some of you guys are going like, oh, man, where's his mind go? I know. Sometimes it's just crazy. So, so but, but it reminded me of that song. I get knocked down, but I get up again. And that's what we see here. We see Samson get another opportunity, no matter what he's failed at, to get back up again and to do what God has called him to do. See, I think what we need to remember is that failure is an incident, not an individual. See, our failures are just a moment in our life. They are not what defines us. They are not who we are. They are just something that happens to us based on our choices, our decisions, or the external forces that happen in our life. That's why they happen, but they are not who we are. We read here in, in chapter 16, verses 23 to 25. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between 
the pillars. But here's the best part. See, we may get knocked down, but we can get up again. And that those failures, they're just an incident. They're not who we are. They're not an individual. They're not who we are. But that God, even in our failures, God can still accomplish his purposes. That's a beautiful thing. That's the best thing about this, that no matter what we've done or who we've been or what mistakes we've made or how many times we failed, God can use that over and over again to accomplish his purposes. And we see that here in Samson's life. They put him between the pillars and we pick it up in verses uh, 29 and 30 and it says this, and Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. See, when we allow God to use our failures for his purposes, guess what happens? Buildings fall. Pillars fall. Bondages fall. Addictions fall. Because when we let God use those failures for his purposes, he makes his glory known in those situations. And he did it in Samson's life there at the end. But it cost him everything. And when we say yes to Jesus, that's exactly what it does. It costs us everything. It costs us to say, yes, Jesus, I lay my life down at your feet. Yes, Lord, I give my life to you. But in the end, the beautiful thing about it is that no matter what we've done, he can use those all for his glory and for his purposes. I think about our baptism testimony videos. A lot of times what what we say on this stage, oftentimes, I, I feel like a lot of times it gets heard, but sometimes I feel that the testimonies and the stories of you and other people, they have so much more impact because people identify with where they're at. They go, I've been there. I struggle with alcohol. I struggle with lust. I struggle with money finance. I struggle with, and these people are sharing these stories. I've been there. I understand that. I know what it's like to be in that position, but God saved them. Can he save me? Yes, he can. And not only can he save me, but he can use those failures to lead other people to Jesus. Amen? Amen. He uses our failure still for his purposes. And then number three, our failures don't determine our faithfulness. Our failures don't determine our faithfulness to God. Proverbs 24, 16 says, for the righteous falls seven times and rises again. So the important thing is that when we get knocked down, we get back up again. The important thing is that we make that effort to get back up again. I think in that moment with Delilah, Samson failed to get up again. But as he was grain in the a ground in the corn, and as his hair grew back, and as he walked around that time and time again, he began to think about, no, God's bigger than this. God's got more in store for me. I'm not done yet. I'm not knocked down. No, I'm getting back up again. And I think that's the same for us. No matter what it may be, maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Maybe, maybe you've fallen into a trap 
and you failed at some things, that's okay. Because we believe in a God who gives us second chances time and time again, more than that. And that as we continue to be faithful in him each and every day, he is faithful to forgive. And I think for us, it's really this, that our failures lead us to forgiveness. Our forgiveness leads us to a future in Jesus. And our future in Jesus leads us to making followers of him. See, he doesn't just stop with us saying yes to Jesus and then finding that freedom in Jesus, that future in Jesus. No, it continues on with us saying, guess what? My failures, no matter how great they may have been, God has saved me from them all. And you know what? Maybe you failed. And that's okay because God takes you where you're at and he can, he's gonna use those things to lead other people to him because of what he's brought you out of. So don't let our failures define us. When you hear that song, I get knocked down, let it be a reminder that you know what? It's not about drinking alcohol. No, it's about a God who gives us a second chance and that we believe in a God that only gives a second chance but a God who has said, get back up because I've got things in store for you. Get back up because I'm gonna use your failures to lead people to me. Get back up because you have a destiny and I'm gonna use your failures for my purposes and I'm gonna see you You enter the kingdom of heaven and one day you're gonna get to hear story after story of people who were touched by your life. Amen? You guys believe that? You believe that? Amen, let's go out pray. So let's just, for a moment here, uh, let's just bow our heads and I just wanna give everybody an opportunity to, uh, to just pray and at all our campuses, at Washington, Germantown, and online, let's pray. Dear God, we just thank you for who you are. God, for your grace and your mercy and your goodness. God, we just thank you that our failures do not define us. That who we are is defined by you, God, by the grace that you've given us, by the love that you've shown us, by the mercy that you've given us, and that God, in each and everything that we do, as we follow you, God, that we give you praise, and that we can take our failures, we can take the things that we haven't done right, God, and not let them hold us back, but God, let us use them for your glory and lead people to you as we share them and say, God, you've saved me from this, you've saved me from that, and I know there's people Also, in our families and friends, God, they still struggle. We may even still struggle. But God, I pray in your name, Jesus, that you break the bondages of addiction. Lord, that you break the bondages in all of our lives of anything that's holding us back from your grace and your mercy and your goodness, God, and from the things that are of you, and that there be freedom in this room. There be freedom, God. We live in a world that is so tired and so hungry for something more. God, we just keep searching and grasping for so many different things when all we need is you and your spirit to just speak into our hearts and our minds. God, and to bring revival to our nation, to our city, to our town, to our schools, to our workplaces. God, that people might know you more than anything. And God, that you may set them free and that their failures don't define them anymore, but God, their faithfulness to you does as they follow you. And as we lead others to you, God, I just pray, help us each and every day. God, thank you for it.
Thank you for your spirit that you give us to lead us, to guide us, Lord, and to give us the advice and the wisdom. And Lord, thank you for a community of believers that are family. God, that help us each and every day.